You want to find your tribe of raving fans. And that's just what we're here to help you do. This is the Digging Deep Podcast with 360 Media, where we help entrepreneurs build better businesses by not only sharing insights and candid conversations, but by nurturing our minds as well. Get ready to explore, plan, and showcase your business, because here we go. Here's your host, Chief Strategist of 360 Media and Educator at TacticalProgram.com, Justin Lamb. Hey everybody, this is Justin from 360 Media and Tactical Program, uh, bringing you another podcast episode of Digging Deep, where I help business owners build better businesses. And today I am being uh, joined by Michelle Seiler Tucker, of the uh, author of Sell Exit Rich, um, a new book that she has coming out. And uh, thank you for joining me on the show. I know you've been busy, uh, but uh, thank you for for hopping on with me today, Michelle. Thank you for having me. So Michelle, tell me a little bit about you. Uh, where did you come from? Um, you know, where where has life brought you uh, up to this moment? Okay. Well, where did I come from? <laughs> I was born in Long Beach, California. I live in New Orleans. And I'm a merger, mergers and acquisitions master intermediary. Been in this industry a little over 20 years. And have personally sold over 500 companies. But my business has sold a little over 1,000. Fantastic. And, um, you know, so tell me a little bit about, um, you know, your book uh, that's coming out. What, what's, what's going on with it? You know, why did you choose to write the book? Yep. So this is actually my third book I've written and um, it's called Exit Rich. And the main reason I wrote it is because everybody's exiting poor. <laughs> and when I wrote my very first book called Sell Your Business for More Than It's Worth in 2013, I did the research back then. I learned that 95% of all startups would go out of business, right? We all know that between one to five years. But when I started doing a research for Exit Rich, I learned that the business landscape has actually flip-flopped. It's dramatically changed. Only 30% of startups will go out of business. But out of 27.6 million companies, those businesses that have been in business for 10 years or longer, 70% of them will go out of business, 70%. So that's a huge, huge, startling statistic facing baby boomers. And, you know, you hear about the big public companies all the time, like Toys R Us and Business 75 Years goes out of business. Steinmark, Kmart, Pier 1, GNC closing down 1,500 locations. The Disney store is closing. Um, Godive is closing down a bunch of locations. But what you're not hearing about all the private businesses on every street corner and every town and every state across our great nation these business owners are exiting poor. They're selling for pennies on the dollar. They're having to um, close their business or even worse, file bankruptcy. So that's why I wrote Exit Rich. Um, the number one reason for that is because business owners stop doing what I call AIM. AIM, A-I-M, is always innovate and market. They stop innovating, they stop marketing. You're either growing or dying. There is no in-between. <laughs> you know, Toys R Us didn't do anything different in 75 years. Blockbuster saw Netflix had an opportunity to buy Netflix, and they sat back and did nothing, and now they're out of business. So that's why I wrote Exit Rich. Exit Rich is all about planning your, your um, exit from the beginning because what Steve Forbes says, here's another sterling statistic. 80% of businesses will never sell. Eight out of 10 companies will never sell. That's a huge rolling statistic, you know, to business owners. So 
this ought to wake business owners up where they go, oh my God, what's happening here? How do I not become part of 70% of businesses that close or part of the 80% of businesses that don't sell? And Steve Forbes actually endorsed Exit Rich. So Exit Rich is all about planning your exit from the beginning, like Stephen Covey says, start with the end in mind. And it's all about betting your business on the proper infrastructure using this ST6Ps so your business is attractive and sellable. Most business owners have not built a business that someone wants to buy. Yeah, and I think a lot of that has to do with uh, poor infrastructure and systems, just like you said. Uh, and then the other one is mindset. Uh, a lot of people feel like they should sell at the top, but they don't ever sell at the top because then they get greedy and then they start to decline and they don't sell on the way down because they think they can save it. Uh, and then they get too old and they can't do any of those. So, I mean, I, I totally get you. That's true. <laughs> right? It does, right? I mean, so the landscape is really quite, quite, quite interesting that way. I mean, um, I think the biggest hurdle is, you know, often psychology. Uh, and then, of course, the next one was right up after that is systems. But let's talk about um, building a sustainable, scalable, uh, and sellable business, because uh, that is one of the ST6Ps that you have in your book. Uh, and I think it's really uh, an interesting subject because I'm deeply passionate about systems. I'm deeply passionate about people being able to buy uh, um, into a business that is um, sellable at the end. So tell me a little bit about the six Ps and uh, how does it fit in your, in your book and, and in your ecosystem? So the six Ps is the infrastructure. So business owners, a lot of times focus on marketing, right? Getting clients in, but they don't focus on the infrastructure. And, and one of the biggest mistakes that business owners make is they've created a glorified job in which they go to work at every day versus a business that actually works for them. So one of the number one reasons that businesses are not sellable is because the owner is the business. You take the owner out of the business, there is no such thing. There is no business. So the number one P is people. You don't build a business, you build people, and people build the business. So owners have to stop having their finger in every pie. <laughs> they need to focus on their strengths, hire their weaknesses, have the right people in the right seats and ask the who question. Who opens the door? Who handles customer service, marketing, accounting, legal, human resources, manufacturing, logistics, quality control? The clue here is that you should never be next to the who because you're really trying to build a business to run without you. So entrepreneurs are control freaks. They always think, well, if you want it done right, you got to do it yourself. That's not true because a lot of things are not being done right. <laughs> so if you want to, if you want to grow, you need to let go of the control. Yeah, absolutely. And business owners need to work on their business, not in it. Yep. But so, so often, and, and I know the answer to this, or I, I you know, I have an opinion about it, but you know, most entrepreneurs who are listening to this um, are going to go, well, you know, how am I going to do that without marketing? And, you know, when, when does that transition happen? When do I hire the next person? So, you know, what are your take on, what is your take on that? When do you hire the next person? Yeah. When you hire the next person, like why, why not do the marketing? I'm, I'm getting all this business. Why, why not hire the, you know, why, why should I hire another person? When does that happen? So I'm confused on your question. Are you asking, don't do them? Why should I not, should I not no, do the so, marketing? Yeah. Well, no, I think people try to do marketing um, yeah. and, and they're asking, well, you know, I want to hire another person, but you know, why, why should I be, um, why should I be hiring a new person 
when I can just t- take all the work for myself and, and then they drown in the work. So what I'm asking is, is when, when did the person know when to hire a person? Like why, why would they decide to do that and where should they start? Well, I think it goes back to, you don't build a business, you build people and people build the business. If it's just you, it's not scalable. If it's just you, it's not sustainable. So when should I start? It should start right away. It should start when you're like, oh my gosh, I got so much on my plate. I need to hire somebody for this. I need to hire somebody for that. It should really start right away when you figure out, I can't do this all by myself and I shouldn't do it all by myself because I'm trying to create a company, not a job. So it needs to start from day one, from day one. Yeah, no, and no, I understand that. So the next question that comes after that, when, when you tell them that you should start right away or should at least plan for starting that uh, as soon as possible, is that I can't hire a person because I don't know if the cash flow is going to sustain them for you know the foreseeable future. And I had this question recently from a coaching client, uh, and they asked me that, and I gave them an answer. But I want to hear yours, you know, and I'm sure they all find it valuable because he listens to the podcast too. <laughs> well, you know, it depends upon where you are. I mean, it's difficult sometimes to start with a W-2. I get that because the cash flow might not be there. But nobody says you have to hire a W-2. You can start with 1099s. You can also start with college students. There are lots of colleges are all around us. I have five around me. And a lot of the colleges require the students to do an internship to even graduate. We actually have a wait list at my office for students who want to do a summer internship. So you got to figure, you got to figure out a way, because if you don't have an assistant, you are the assistant. So either it's a W-2, it's 1099s, or it's kids from college, but you got to figure out a way to start building a team. Absolutely. And so, you know, keep going with the six P's. We've got people as the first P. What's the next P? So the next P is product. And remember when I told you that out of 27.6 million companies, that 70% of them are going out of business after being in business 10 years, right? Because a lack of innovation and lack of marketing. Business owners are married to their concept. So the second P is product. This is your product, your industry, your service. And remember, lack of aim is why so many businesses go out of business. So you have to ask yourself, is my product, my service, my industry on the way up or on the way out? Do I have an Amazon? I'm in my prime. If you're in your prime with Amazon, you need to sell. (laughs) You know, or do I have a blockbuster? I'm about to go bust. And this is where a lot of businesses end up going out of businesses right here with product because they're in a dying industry. I mean, look at Blockbuster. We just talked about Blockbuster. You know, they did nothing, nothing different. You're either growing or dying. So I always tell my clients, ask yourself three transformational questions. Amazon did this back in the 90s. Ask yourself, what business are you in? That's number one. Amazon said, we're in a book fulfillment business. We fulfill book orders. Number two is what is your core competency? What are you really good at? What's your USP? What do you do better than everyone else? And Amazon said, we do fulfillment better than everyone else. The next obvious question is, what business should we be in? What business should we be in? What business should we pivot to? Amazon said, we should be in a fulfillment business, fulfilling orders for everyone, not just books. Those three transformational questions transformed Amazon from a small, small book fulfillment center to the multi-billion dollar conglomerate that they are today. Can you imagine where Amazon would be if they never asked those questions? 
<laughs> well, he'd still be in his house and uh, with that with that really tacky sign that says Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so those are three big questions that business owners need to start thinking about because business owners have to get out of the tactical, the transactional, and become transformational. Yeah, absolutely. And Sears is another one. Uh, Sears up here, and and they had uh, Sears in in the U.S. and that was a dying dying case i mean you'd go into sears and every year you'd see less and less of sears inside the the actual physical space and so you knew it was a dying business but they didn't try to innovate they didn't really try to push any any further and then they just became the liquidators of their own product and services yeah um, i mean yeah. And, that, and that's the problem i mean that's what toys are us they went out of business they tried to rebirth they tried to come back they opened up five new boutique stores and they went back out of business again so that's product. And then also the other uh, place that people get in trouble, Justin, is you need to have more than one profit center. You can't have one way to get paid because if that one way dries out, then you're literally out of business. That's what happened during this pandemic. Restaurants have one way. They get paid by clients coming in and dining or taking food to go or delivery service. When the restaurant industry shut down, what other thing did they have going for them? What other profit center did they have? Most of them had none. Some have e-commerce sites. Some sell recipes and seasoning and cookbooks and aprons and you know, all kinds of different things. But a lot of them had no additional profit centers. You have to have congruent revenue streams. You got to have multiple ways to get paid. Yeah, and I think a lot of people don't really understand what that means. I think a lot of people feel when they say multiple streams of income, uh, it doesn't necessarily have to be multiple different streams of income. It could be all related in, tang in tangent Correct. or congruent uh, industries. And so our business is the same. So, you know, we have a wedding division, a commercial division. Uh, we have coaching, education, um, and then, of course, uh, residual income so from investments uh, that, that play into to keeping the, the boat afloat, so to speak. Um, and, you know, people might go, well, they're all the same industry, but they're not. They all have different industry and ebbs and flows. Um, and, you know, through thick and thin, I mean, I went through a recession um, and I also went through a huge technology boom. Uh, and then I went through a flat line in, in an industry where uh, the events, you know, just dried up overnight during this pandemic. But we were still able to maintain because we had multiple avenues, multiple streams mm -hmm. of income. And I think that's something that a lot of people don't understand um, is that you don't have to have, you know, you don't have to have a restaurant business and then a, you know, like a hotel business or and then a car wash. Like they can all be congruent to the same industry, but looking for opportunities within that same industry that you can, you know, put your special uh, sauce, your expertise into. So I right. think that's really important. Yeah, it's, it's got to be within that same industry. And if you don't have congruent revenue streams, I mean, that's really the kiss of death. <laughs> you know, you got to have multiple profit centers. And I, I agree a thousand percent. You don't want to, like, you don't want to have a restaurant and then also be a real estate flipper. <laughs> you know, they got to be congruent. They got to be synergistic. Otherwise, it doesn't, it doesn't typically work. Unless you're McDonald's, because McDonald's is in the real estate business. Flipping well, burgers. that's very different. <laughs> Just kidding. Did you watch the movie The Founder? I did watch the movie The Founder. <laughs> yeah. And you know what? I'm glad you brought that up because think about it. He's think about when Ray Kroc yeah. was in the bank trying to borrow money because it was over leverage. He walked out of that bank. And a gentleman followed him out and he said, I'm so sorry. I just overheard heard your conversation. Can I ask you a question? He said, what business are you at? And Ray Kroc says, I'm in the restaurant business. 
And he said, no, what business are you in? And Ray's like, I'm in a restaurant business, you know? He goes, you're in a real estate business. You need to buy up the real estate. You need to build the, the buildings, lease it back to the franchisees when they're not paying you, when they're not compliant, kick them out and get a new franchisee in there. Because that gentleman followed him out of the bank and asked him, what business are you in? That's what really changed the trajectory at McDonald's and Ray Kroc, because otherwise there probably would not be a McDonald's in every corner. <laughs> there probably would not be a McDonald's everywhere because I don't know if Ray Kroc would have figured that out. Well, he could have met you and you could have done an M&A for him, right? I wasn't around in the 1950s. <laughs> Are you trying uh, to say? Look no, <laughs> no, just kidding, honey. Uh, yeah, but, I wasn't, but can you imagine? I mean, like that's a light bulb moment, right? Yeah. Because that gave, Ray, that gave Ray Kroc the leverage to start McDonald's corporate royalty and gave Ray Hawk the leverage to basically steal McDonald's from the McDonald's brothers. And now that's why McDonald's is the largest real estate holding company in the world. Yeah, but what I was the, the, what I was saying is going out and flipping houses or something like that and then have a restaurant. I mean, it's just not synergistic. Yeah, and, and, and that causes a whole new host of problems of people not, not being able to identify what you really do. And I mean, right. in a marketing sense, that's just suicide because you know, if they can't figure out what you do, are they going to refer you for real estate flipping or for your restaurant? Uh, <laughs> so I try to keep them straight down the line in one different boat, right? Uh, right. So we got product, we got uh, people. What, what else do we have? In the and then we have processes. Yeah. So processes are huge, but they're kind of like exit strategies. People don't think about them until something bad happens, you know? Um, you really need to design your processes around the customer experience, kind of like McDonald's. I'm going to go back to the founder. You know, McDonald's back in 1950 said, we want to build a fast food restaurant fast food system. We want to design it around the customer experience. We want the customers to get great tasting food that's hot, fast, 30 seconds or less. And that's what they did. Do you remember when they went out to the empty tennis courts that they took chalk and drew all around it? They were out there for nine hours before they figured it out. And even though the process has been tweaked along the way, it's the reason that you can eat at McDonald's anywhere on the road and still get the same experience. So we got to design our processes around the customer's experience, not the owner's agenda. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely does. If we don't create wow experiences for our clients, then our competitors will be happy to do it for us. Have you ever had a bad experience with a bank, social media, retail company, where you call to, to talk about your issue and you have to push all these different numbers to get a person? Then you tell your whole story and they're like, let me transfer you. And then you get disconnected <laughs> or you get transferred to six different people and I still don't fix your problem. Yep. And that's why telephone companies have one, some of the worst customer service ratings in the world. Telephone companies and so do banks. Yeah. And so do a lot of retail outlets and so does social media. Social media, heaven forbid, Justin, if you get hacked. I was hacked twice. And you know what? They don't even have a phone number to call. <laughs> no, they don't. You basically so, suffer. Yeah. Processes should be designed around the customer experience. They should be productive, efficient, well-documented, policy procedure manuals, SOP checklist. All that documentation needs to be in place. Absolutely. And the training, of course, like the transfer, transference of, of uh, material and processes is also important because we know 
most people who are in your business aren't going to read the SOP that's 500 pages thick, but they will read videos if they're able to search it up. So, well, the SOP should not be 500 pages. So the policy procedure manual, yeah, it's going to be thick, but SOP checklist <laughs> is just a step-by-step -step checklist. It's supposed to be really short and efficient. It's like why McDonald's can fire someone and have somebody up and running that, that drive-through within 30 minutes Yeah, because they're SOP important. checklist. But that's but yeah, the thing. videos are very important too. Having video training is huge. Yeah, I think that's the thing. A lot of people feel <laughs> like it's got to be this big, long, arduous piece. But um, you know, SOPs are supposed to be designed to be used, and if they're not being used, then the then it's not an SOP. It's 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 a you know something for you to stand on and make yourself taller at the drive thru <laughs> <laughs> So we have people, we have products, we have processes. What's the next P in our list? So the next P is the highest value driver. That's proprietary. So let me give you a crash course on valuations. Businesses under a million dollars in EBITDA, which is earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, amortization, will typically trade between one to three, three and a half, depending upon the synergies. Businesses that have over a million in EBITDA will typically start at five, the multiple and go up depending upon these proprietary assets. So proprietary is the number one value driver. There's six pillars to proprietary. It's my longest P I have to talk about. The other two P's are quick. Um, but first and foremost is branding. The more well-branded you are, the more we can sell your company for, as long as your brand is relevant in the mind of the consumer. Is anybody paying any money for Blockbuster? Nope. Nope. The most valuable brand of all is, do you know, in the world? Oof, that's a tough one. It should be either Apple or Amazon. It should be neck and neck. Stay with your first guess, yeah. Apple. Yeah. We'll now, Amazon's in the, in the top 10, but Apple's got them way beat. Hmm. $359 billion just for the brand. Hmm. That doesn't equate to real estate, cash flow, inventory, receivables, or anything else. So build your brand, build your value. Trademarks are big. Trademark your company name, your slogan, um, your logo. Trademark your podcast. But here's the problem that that mo the mistake that business owners make. Most business owners make bu most business owners come up with an idea. They go to GoDaddy, they type it in like, "Yes, I got the domain," <laughs> and then they go to their state and they file for a trademark in their state, but they never check the federal database. You must check the federal database. I've seen businesses in business 5, 10, 15 years all of a sudden receive a cease and desist letter and I have to stop using that company name. So it's really imperative that you get a federal trademark. You can trademark products too. We have a client that's got 12 different products. Each is exclusive to a different retail store like Walmart, Target, and they have a federal trademark on each. So the bottom line here is you got to protect your IP. Patents are big. If you ever watch Shark Tank, every single investor sounds like a broken record. Do you have a patent on that? Do you have a patent pending? <laughs> and an offer is always contingent upon patents. Contracts are big. Manufacturing, distribution, vendor, franchisor contracts, any type of exclusivity contracts are very valuable, especially client contracts. Because client contracts mean a lot to a buyer. They mean revenues coming in the door especially the ones with subscription models with reoccurring revenue. Here's a mistake the business owners make with contracts. In all the 20 years I've been doing this, thousand deals, I have never seen an owner get this right. You need a transfer, you need the two sentence transferability clause that says 
this contract is transferable upon a new entity. 98% of all sales are asset sales. If your buyer doesn't agree to a stock sale or your customers don't agree to consent to transfer, then your deal can really fall dead in its tracks. That, that's something I didn't even consider. That's an Nobody considers it. No, Nobody considers no. it. So yeah. we need to be proactive. I mean, what if you have 2,000 clients? You want to go to all 2,000 and ask them to sign consent to transfer because you're selling your company? Mm. No. What if the sale doesn't go through? Now they know you're selling your company. That's true. So you got to get that two-cent transferability clause. Um, the other one is databases are very valuable, especially if you nurture them. If you have touch points, that they can be repurposed and retargeted. Facebook paid... $19 billion for WhatsApp and WhatsApp was hemorrhaging money, but they have a synergy. That's what we're talking about right now are synergies. They have a billion users and Facebook knew they can monetize an ROI. And then celebrity endorsements, you know, um, anybody, we work with a lot of clients to get them ready for Shark Tank. So anyone that's got an ambassador, like say, let's say they got Mr. Wonderful or Mark Cuban, that's a celebrity endorsement. You got a celebrity partner. Uh, we got a client that has our products and Oprah's favorite things. Celebrity endorsements, radio personalities are big because they typically can only endorse one vertical at a time. <clears throat> and then also for e-commerce businesses, any of the top positions online like Etsy, Wayfair, Amazon in your particular niche. All of these are proprietary assets. Content is worth money. Positioning on the internet is worth money. Um, just think about like engineers who have all these blueprints and things like that. There's a lot of IP in different companies and they don't realize it. Hmm. So when you get somebody to evaluate your business, you've got to get an expert who knows how to evaluate synergies. And so where do you find... Um... You know, where, where would a person start to, you know, if they're going to go evaluation, what, what type of. I wouldn't go to a CPA. I would go to mergers and acquisitions advisor because CPAs, I mean, that's not really what they do every day. They don't really know how to value synergies. No, they don't know what buyers are wanting to pay more money for certain type of synergies. So in, in the U.S. it's uh, uh, mergers and acquisitions advisor, but uh -huh. is there is it an equivalent up in Canada? Is it under a different name? Do you know? It's advisors. It's M&A advisors. Okay, There's so. business brokers or M&A advisors. If, if you're selling a pizzeria, ice cream store, something like that, go to a business broker. If you're selling a 10 million, 15, 20, 30, 40, 50 million dollar company, you want a mergers and acquisitions advisor, not a business broker. Good, good separation. Awesome. Yeah. So we have uh, processes, uh, we have um, proprietary. What's next? Patriots. So this is your customer base. This is your customer base. Nice. Whereas most businesses follow the 80-20 rule where 80% of the revenue comes from 20% of the clients. Mm -hmm. The big issue with that is if you lose a client, you could literally put you out of business. Make sense? Yep. And we have a lot of clients that have customer concentration. I mean, we sold a business, uh, all manufacturing business that had 65% of the revenue tied up in BP. And we appraised it for $9.8 million. We have 550 buyers. We narrowed it down to 12 letter of intents. All of the buyers though had language in there like clawbacks and earnouts and you know different type of, of things that protected the buyer and mitigated the risk. But the seller didn't like that. The seller was like, I'm not going to agree to callbacks. I'm not going to agree to all this stuff. 
So luckily we found a strategic that didn't care about customer concentration because they've been trying to get their products into BP for over 20, 30 years. And they said, we don't care about customer concentration. We want in BP. <laughs> they paid $15 million for 70% of the company, which was 126% more than what it appraised for. Mm. Now that's very difficult to do. So I want you to have customer diversification. <laughs> and in addition to that, let's say the businesses have been in business 20, 30, 40, 50 years, their customers are aging out. And you're in marketing. You cannot appeal to Gen X and millennials the same way that you do to baby boomers. They don't buy the same way. They have different buying habits. Yeah, absolutely. So your marketing's got to change. <laughs> All right, so the last P is profits. I always say lack of profits is never the problem. It's always the symptom of not operating one of the other five Ps. Clients come to me all the time and say, Michelle, I have a profit problem. I'm like, no, you have a client problem. You have a patron problem. You have customer concentration, you just lost a big client. Or no, you have a process issue. Or no, you have a people issue. Yep, totally agree. Profits uh, are, are dwindled uh, with everything underneath not uh, it's not never a problem you can have all the best intentions in the world set up all the spreadsheets uh, in the world and and document it using math and you know if you screw up one of the, the the five p's beforehand you can dwindle that profit away just as fast and solopreneurs actually are really quite um, quite trigger happy of buying things on amazon and things to to subdue their urge and their in um, insecurities so they're buying stuff they don't really need you know, to, to cover up the holes of, you know, whatever their insecurities are. And that bleeds their profit margins because they're not using those things and they're not thinking smart about it. Um, you know, some people also try to spend the stuff so they don't have to pay the tax man. Paying the tax man is a good thing to some degree, as long as you pay your fair share of tax, not much more. Um, because that tells you that you're profitable and that somebody can buy you. But if you're not paying taxes, you got a problem. You're not having a profitable business, right? So... I just had a client pay $4.8 million in taxes and they like, how, like, oh my God, I'm so miserable. I go, yeah, but you kept over 7 million. What are you so miserable about? <laughs> it really puts into perspective, but you know, but we, I mean, humans have loss aversion, right? So loss, yeah. loss definitely takes precedence in the psychology than, uh, than the success and the wins. So, you know, I, I get it, uh, you know, 4.8 feels really bad until they realize, oh, well, I have seven, but seven just doesn't feel so good when I'm losing 4.8 perspective, man, perspective. So, but, uh, amazing. But because you're doing it the right way, you're going to get a higher price on the sale of your business. That's true, right? So it's the cash out later, right? Oh man, thank you so much for spending some time with me, sharing some of that wealth and part of the exit uh, uh, rich book. Uh, tell us about when it's going to drop, uh, or is it already on the shelves? You know, when is it coming out? How can people get a hold of it? Uh, share with me some of that stuff. Sure. So Steve was and endorsed exit rich saying that's a goldmine for entrepreneurs as they leave way too much money on the table during the sale of their business. Kevin Harrington, the original Shark on Shark Tank, gave us, wrote the foreword. And then Sharon Lecter is my co-author. She wrote Rich Dad Poor Dad with Robert Kiyosaki. She's a CPA, financial literacy expert, and the advisor to many different presidents. She writes the mentor's corner after each chapter. Uh, we got testimonials from Les Brown, uh, Jack, uh, Jack Canfield, Mark Victor Hansen, you know, Tom Hopkins, Brian Tracy, 
Brad Sugars from Action Coach, so on and so on, saying how great Exit Rich is. So Exit Rich launches June 23rd, June 22nd, June 22nd. And um, you don't have to wait till June 22nd. You can go to Exit Rich Book right now, exitrichbook.com for $24.79, which is less than Amazon. And it includes shipping. We will email you the digital download and ship the hardcover to, to your doorstep for anyone that lives in the United States for no additional shipping costs. Plus, we will give you a lifetime membership into the Exit Rich Book Club, where there's video content, me teaching different strategies and techniques I've been teaching over the last 20 years in the trenches, plus documents, documents to operate your business, documents to sell your business, sample policy and procedure manuals, org charts, employee handbooks, sample letter of intents, purchase agreements, due diligence checklists, closing docs, all the documents you need to run and sell your business are there for your review and your download. This would cost you over $50,000 if you went to your attorney to recreate it. I guarantee I've spent more than $50,000 coming up with these documents. And in addition to that, we'll give you a 30-day free membership in a club CEOs, which is a business entre entrepreneurship mastermind where we do Q&As, hot seats, and really help business owners ask those transformational questions so they can pivot and build that sustainable, scalable, sellable business. All for $24.79 at exitrichbook.com. That's like less than lunch. Yeah, man. Fantastic. Well, for those people who didn't get to this far, I'm going to link that into the description below. Uh, but thank you so much. Uh, one last question I have for you is what is a book or a resource that has deeply impacted your life? And no cheating. Can't use your own book. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's so many that have, have a profound effect. I say, I say Think and Grow Rich from Napoleon Hill Foundation. Uh, number one and Rich Dad Poor Dad had a great a big effect on me as well. Fantastic. Well, thank and you so the much. And Millionaire for... Mindset. If you've never read that, that's like a really good book. Yeah, that is a good book. I like that book. But thank you so much for joining me here today, Michelle. I really do appreciate your time and I know you're a busy lady, so I'm gonna let you get on to the next one. Thank you for having me, Justin. It's a pleasure being with you. Pleasure as well. We want to thank you for listening to the Digging Deep Podcast with 360 Media. Your time is valuable, and we're deeply humbled that you are spending this time with us. We'd love to connect with you. Find us on Instagram at 360photo and at Tactical Titans. You can also email us. We want to make this channel great, something you enjoy and find tons of value in. Send us your insights to info at 360photo.com. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. It helps us reach more listeners. As always, tune in next week as we dig deeper into business and marketing.